Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, I'm so happy you're here with us today. Our guest is an authorized Ashtanga yoga teacher. She's been practicing for many years, and she's also a dear friend of mine. She is a published author. She wrote a beautiful children's book that adults also will just relish and enjoy called Young Yogi and the Mind Monsters. This book is a beautiful illustrated story that comes alive, and it's based on each verse from the first Pada, or the first chapter of the Patanjali Yoga Sutras. So, of course, I'm talking about none other than Sonia Radvila. Ramana Maharshi, who is an inspiration of mind, many of you might know this sage, this uh, philosopher, this enlightened being of Advaita Vedanta philosophy, wrote that breath control is the means for mind control. So many of you have read Patanjali Yoga Sutras and would be familiar with the second verse, the definition on yoga, yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha, meaning yoga is the stilling or the calming, the controlling or channelizing of the fluctuations, the vritti of the mind or the mind stuff, the thoughts. So this quote from Ramana Maharshi reminds us that the mind is like the breath, It's part of the air, its nature is mobility. And this quality of movement is common to both the breath and the mind. Ramana Maharshi says the place of the origin is the same for both the mind and the breath. And when one of them is controlled, the other gets controlled. So I wanted to just share that quote and those thoughts with you because breathing practices pranayama or the control or expansion of the prana, the breath, is such an important aspect of the ashtanga, the eight limbs of the ashtanga yoga practice. And that's why I wanted to invite you to register to join me for my Ancient Breathing 2.0 course. We're going to be starting a new group in May and I will be holding live classes on both Saturdays and Sundays so that students in Asia and Australia can join me on a Sunday morning. It will be Saturday afternoon here. Or you can join me if you're in North America also on a Sunday morning, which will um, be really wonderful to be able to reach you in all places around the globe. So we're going to give it a try for the live classes. But this particular course has a whole bunch of videos, pre-recorded videos, and teachings that you can watch on your own time. And in the live classes, we will practice together and review the practices. And of course, it'll be an opportunity for you to ask questions and for me to also um, watch your practice to make sure things are progressing and you're um, doing things correctly. So I would really love for you to join me in this course. You can find all information for how to sign up on my website. If you go to my homepage at harmonyslater.com, you will find a link for the Ancient Breathing 2.0 course, and you can just click there and register today. I will be also offering a free mastermind class on May 1st and May 2nd that everybody is welcome to join. It will be specifically geared to 
beginners and just starting a pranayama practice or a breathwork practice. So even if you've never practiced yoga before, you have friends or family who have never practiced any kind of breathing exercises before, uh, this class, this master class, will be directed towards explaining why taking even just 10 minutes out of your day to breathe will help to uh, increase your energy, decrease uh, chronic states of inflammation in the body, as well as help to control and balance your mind. So those are a few upcoming things for me this month, the month of May. I hope that you will join me in either the full course, which will take eight weeks, or in the free masterclass. And so without uh, waiting any longer, here is my friend Sonia Radvilla, and of course, Russell Case and myself. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and I'm here with my co-host, Russell Case. I'm happy to be alive yet again. Amazing. Another day. <laughs> and we are joined today by our very special friend and guest, Sonia Redvilla. Hi, Sonia. How are you doing? Good. How are you guys? I'm trying Good. to laugh when Russell talks because it's already making me laugh. <laughs> I know. We're going to have a little giggle fest, I think, mm. you and me. I'm happy to be alive today too. So okay. happy to be here with you. Yeah, I th I think of most people as um, the reason that they're here is that they didn't commit suicide. That's why everyone is here. That's all the people that are left. <laughs> There's a lot of us. Like <laughs> the seven billion people decided not to commit suicide. <laughs> There's a lot of survivors. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's a nicer way of putting it, Sonia. That's super positive. Wow. Yeah, that is much more positive than where I was coming from. Um, I have a little. I have a little intro for you as well. Um, okay. For, for... <laughs> <laughs> she's she's bracing herself yeah, over felt there. Her, I felt her. Right to, she like, she uh -oh. took the took the sides of the table. I was like, hold her. <laughs> Uh, for those of you out there in Radioland, you know uh, that our show is themed uh, around issues of crisis and resolution in our lives, um, often in the context of yoga. Uh, we explore coming of age, motherhood, other like thresholds. Um, Ashtanga yoga is also built this way. It's built in these threshold postures that we, we have to overcome and often they're so tied to us emotionally that that's the real the roadblock is, is ourselves before we can go any further. Uh, for many in our community, we're attracted to Ashtanga Yoga. However, precisely because we endured something like this already, uh, a lot of us who are creatives, for example, punk handmade artists, dancers, writers, painters. Today, we're introducing uh, Sonia Radvia, who is <laughs> all of these things and more. Sonia, are you, are you Portuguese? Is that a Portuguese name? No, Radvilla. No, Radvilla. No, Rad it's it's Godzilla. Lithuanian. Lithuanian? Yes. Yes, really? Really? Okay. Yes. 
My, my family's from, well, both my parents are Lithuanian. My dad was born there. He came to America when he was seven. Um, he and my grandparents emigrated. Wow. Yeah. And my mom, my mom's also Lithuanian, but she's born in Chicago. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a yeah, big Lithuanian community there. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. How did they meet? They met in high school. Yeah. In Chicago? Yes. What what yeah. suburb? Um, that's a good question. That is a very good question. <laughs> um, I know my I know my grandfather lived in the Market Park area for a long time, oh, yeah. okay. and my grandmother, much later, lived in Park Ridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But they moved. They moved to Colorado in the sixties. So, ah. Yeah. So why before you were born. Why would yes. they do that? <laughs> Well, I think it's great because we, me and my mom were reflecting on what it would have been like if we all stayed in Chicago, what kind of person I would have turned out to be. Well, a better one. <laughs> maybe, um, Russell, maybe. No. No, you, you have these wonderful dulcet tones and, I, and it reminds me so much of the Canadian Westerner. There's a very oh. particular accent. And when you first got on the phone, I thought, oh, God, is she from Alberta or British Columbia? Like, oh, maybe it's the Colorado piece. It's so it's we're not far, are we? No, I guess not. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that the uh, like the British Columbian kind of Albertan people are most similar to the people in uh, Colorado, I would say down the Rocky Mountains, especially the Albertan culturally, people, yeah. culturally, were very similar. And to be honest, you would have sound more like a, if you were from, if you were, if you had grown up in Chicago, you would have sound more like a deranged person. It's <laughs> a <particular laughs> nasally accent that's sort of hard to suffer. Um, so you grew up in Colorado. What was that like? Was there a lot of, a lot of shootings where you grew up? <laughs> Those came later, Russell. <laughs> <laughs> that's not to laugh about but um no we shouldn't laugh about it. i had um, a very so constant i had a very um i guess kind of a very integrated upbringing you know i was a student of busing so i was bused into black neighborhoods those kids were bused into white neighborhoods so i was a total product of desegregation mm. um yeah so i'm kind of grateful for that because i was even in my high school i was a minority in my 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 high school at the time so I think it kind of gave me a different um, I don't know I just knew that there's more to the world than just a, being white mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I went to an all-black high school in New Orleans um, New Orleans wow. of Arts and it's, it is it's it's very different and you you find yourself in very different circumstances than in a kind of um, the bubble you can find yourself in otherwise yeah yeah and i i definitely like i have very um clear memories of you know kids coming to my elementary school from laos and vietnam and cambodia and um you know there were latino kids and you know kids from everywhere so i do feel (laughs) i feel grateful that i i grew up with that awareness but I thought it kind of got me off the hook about racism these days. Like, I can't be racist because I grew up like this. But it's definitely had me have a hard look at, you know, my own little racist tendencies that I didn't know were there. 
it, it's sometimes it's mm-hmm. difficult to understand what what you have that you've been privileged to have. Yes. And in that it's so you can be so blind to something like that because it's you just assume that you worked hard for it. And then you, you can, you can also assume that, well, I have, you know, a punishing amount of trauma. You know, I'm, <laughs> you know, I, 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 everything I have, I earned because of, of, you know, what I endured, but it's still like, what wouldn't you have if you, if you didn't have this privilege? I think that's the, the nature of privilege is that you don't even realize. <laughs> yeah. You don't even realize the privilege. Yeah. Did your did your parents talk about that at all? The 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 struggle coming from Lithuania to to the states, and did they talk to you about it as a when you were a child? How how mm. difficult it was for them? No, I don't have that awareness. But um, I think my dad just really wanted to be like he didn't teach us Lithuanian, and he didn't bring us up Catholic. So those were two things that my grandparents were very upset about. <laughs> so when I would stay with them, they would try to, you know, I'd get immersed in around Lithuanian. I was going to Lithuanian summer camps. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I would come home like really wanting to to learn the language. And my dad would kind of do that, you know, for a couple weeks and then it would just fade away. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. He just so, really wanted you to integrate and he wanted to integrate into I the American so. culture. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. What did he do for work? My dad, he had like a lot of odd jobs. He was a teacher uh, in his younger years. And then he had a lot of odd jobs. He was like kind of a tortured, uh, he was a writer. So he was quite a tortured uh, artist type person. Yeah, I can sympathize. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting because you also followed in your father's footsteps. I guess in a way, I mean, I'm yeah. sitting also on a pile of some of his unpublished work, like one finished novel, a bunch of plays, um, one unfinished novel that's very, very good. It's actually about um, a boy who comes to America from Lithuania, but it's kind of a magic, magical surrealist book that he didn't finish. Oh, incredible. Um, I, I, yeah. It sounds like uh, you're saying that your father passed. Yeah, he died in 2008. Yeah. Yeah, he was young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, growing up with him, did you did you feel you know, very connected to your family? Did you or did you feel disaffected? I mean, I, I have the sense that you have a kind of a punk mystique about you, <laughs> and so I'm wondering if if uh, if there were particular directions or, or or did you find yourself cheerleading? What did you do? No, I was not a cheerleader. <laughs> um, but I wasn't. I wouldn't say I was ever a punk. I, I definitely. I saw that in your your notes. But um, I think the closest I ever got to being kind of punk rock was I moved away from from here after high school, and I went to San Francisco for a year, and um, I was a bike messenger during that time that's so, so that fucking probably, punk are you kidding that, that was probably the most <laughs> that's punk. so punk you've got tattoos right? i did you're I a did. bike messenger in san francisco you've got powerful thighs like the whole <laughs> reeks of punk maybe so i never considered myself like that although i mean i definitely think i've always had a hmm, I, I don't know if rebellious or just 
kind of going against the main the main flow of things. Mm. Where'd you yeah. live in San Francisco? I lived south of Market. Yeah. Yeah. Between and... sixth and seventh in Howard and Folsom. So you you like you avoided Knob Hill or anything uphill. You just like you just messaged on the flat parts of the market. You do pretty much, yeah. You're not that's what everyone's like, oh my God, you go up the hills, but you don't really. Yeah. It's all in the them. financial. Yeah. There's a isn't there like a um there's a word for like the bike path through San Francisco where you never have to go uphill. What's that thing called? A There's some kind of loop that the you trolley. can you can bicycle and never have to go uphill through the city. But, oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. So there you are. You're you're 18 years old in San Francisco. You're a bike messenger. You're you're living the life. What year is that? That's around 92, 91, 92. Oh, incredible. And and then you thought, well, I should really go back to school, go back to Colorado. Why would you do that? I kind of got um, that wildness a little bit out of my system. I mean, the community was really great in a lot of ways, but there was a lot of there was a lot of drug use and wildness. And um, some things kind of scared me out of that. And I thought, you know what, I, this was fun, but I want to go back to school now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Were you? Did you think of yourself as artistic at that time? And when when you went back to school, were you thinking that you were, you would study in the arts? Um, no. I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I started. Um, I had a I had an intro to um, anthropology course, and that really interested me. Oh, I was interested in film because in high school I had done a kind of a survey film course. Mm-hmm. So, um, we got in, exposed to radio and film and television and audio engineering. And I really enjoyed the, the film a lot. Mm. So, yeah. So once I got to see you, I just started, um, studying both. It's so you were studying anthropology and film yeah. production and then yeah. you, you got, you had dual bachelors yeah bachelors in anthropology and a, and a bfa yeah i did bachelors of fine arts i did <laughs> you had you did a duel i did yeah what did you do your duel in i did a bachelors of philosophy oh. and a bachelors of religious studies oh so Those you already had this in your system from early. yes yes yeah. i was I was interested in all things mysterious from a young age. (laughs) Try and and explain what was going on. Yeah. That's really what it, yeah. I relate with that. I I have that um, understanding. Like, um, I know when I was in high school, you know, I was experimenting around and, and that's when I had the awareness and the awakening of just, everything being one and there not being any separation. And that started kind of a theme mm-hmm. <laughs> after. Yeah. Can, can you describe an experience where that happened, where everything became one? Well, uh, through LSD and mushrooms. <laughs> As a young child. Not well, a high young school. Child. High school is not that young. No, I thought she was taking LSD as a young no, child. No, she said in no. high school. Because no. that's a good time to start. to start. No, <laughs> no, in high school. No, I actually, I actually I saw a um, a uh, a brain scan 
that uh, described how the brain uses um, information, I guess is the best way to describe it. And as it, when you're a child, you, you're not uh, very efficient. And so you use your brain in a very global way. Mm-hmm. So you see a child who seems to slip in and out of fantasy and reality. You know, they'll, they'll play in a puddle and they'll see, you know, uh, you know, uh, play monsters that are playing in the puddle with them. They just sort of slip into that very quickly. And then very quickly, like after seven, eight, nine, we start to become more modulated with our brain. We use very specific parts of it. And so we use, you know, the part of our brain for driving to drive. And we just, we do that thing. We don't have to use the whole, the whole of the brain to drive until you try LSD. (laughs) And then that's what happens. The brain uses the whole of the brain suddenly to try and operate basic things like a car or a (laughs) sandwich. And it's like, oh, this thing is alive. But I would say I would say that awareness is certainly in children, um, and it's you know maybe it's a brain activity, but it's also conditioning is so heavy duty, mm-hmm. right? That you just you get lost, or most people just don't even realize how conditioned. I, I mean, I still don't realize how conditioned I am. Yeah, yeah. It's it's you don't know what you don't know, right? We all have these blind spots that you can't see yourself clearly unless it's being reflected back to you in someone else, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this is why I also, I think yoga, I mean, for me now that took the place initially anyway, it took the place of didn't replace drugs, but the, it took the, it carried on the seed of um, that feeling, mm. the feeling yeah. that I was looking for that, that, that deeper wisdom of knowing that was starting to be, shown in philosophies that I didn't know about. Yeah. Because nothing can replace drugs. That's right. <laughs> um, so you're, you're getting a... Kids, don't do drugs. <laughs> we need so, to put a warning on this episode. You're getting a, you're getting a BFA film production. You've taken a, a load of acid. You've been a, a bike messenger. And I wouldn't say a so load. Gonna... Don't exaggerate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, let's, and so you're... Um, you're in film production. Were you interested in making films or were you, were you kind of in, interested in the process? What was, what was guiding you in that, in that? Oh, I loved all of it. I mean, I loved, I loved films and we had to do a lot of film studies. So I was exposed to just seeing so much, but we, you know, Boulder, the school in Boulder was very notorious for um, making films and studying films. So yeah, I was making films. And at the time, I really thought I wanted to make documentaries. You know, that's what I thought I was going to do. Because of anthropology, and because I was so curious um, about the world and everything. So I yeah, I mean, some of my, my, um, the people I went to school with at the time are some famous filmmakers now. So (laughs) um, yeah, I got it's it's not too late, Sonia. You could still do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't think anyone, that's a... <laughs> anyone we would know that you study Derek C in France. Um and and I I worked a little with um the people who are on South Park now, not Trey, oh. but his executive producer. I worked on some films with him. Yeah. yeah so 
I worked on a student, Derek's student film that went to Sundance in the late 90s. Um, I worked on some other documentaries with him after that. And then, yeah, I was mostly doing assistant camera work and stuff like that during school. Yeah. Oh, and I think um, Ralphie the Buffalo was your mascot at UC. <laughs> or was he a bison? Ralphie the bison. I don't know. It's the buffalo, I think, because they're the CU buffs. Yeah, they're, they're, but Russell, they I wasn't be, really, I wasn't really should... interested in football. No, <laughs> the, oh, the buffaloes. Um, I remember when I was in school in Chicago, I, Northwestern got on a tear, and our coach Gary Barnett like abandoned the team to go um, coach football at UC, and he was your he was your football coach there. You remember you remember him. I don't. I <laughs> was totally off my radar. Oh, I had no wow. consciousness. She was that. in I, the art scene. You weren't, because you must have been pretty excited. No, you weren't excited at all. I'll go to the next question. Okay, it wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> I probably um, should have told you that. <laughs> were you? Were you? Were you your... sound like you had about as much awareness about your uh, school sports uh, department as I did. You, you've been to the Grey Cup. That's like the yeah, CFL. That's, that's like professional. Many times you've been to the, the Grey Cup. That was after I graduated. You're a huge I am Canadian a huge... football fan. Yeah. Okay. I like yeah. American football too, but that yeah. was like that de- was uh, something that developed after high school. It's something you kind of have to <laughs> nurture. Um, <laughs> Were your parents pretty happy about the direction that you're going in and into film production and anthropology? Is that something that they were supportive? They were supportive always of whatever I wanted to do. Like when I decided I didn't want to go to college right away, I think they were disappointed, but they were, they were never controlling about that at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was lucky in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Full support. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at this time, were you looking around at yoga in college as well? Or is that later when you graduated? No, that was after, unfortunately, because I was in Boulder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, um, after, after um, well, in university, I did spend a year in Egypt. So that what? started, <laughs> I, yeah, I went to school in Cairo for a year or about 11 months. And wow. that Good kind God. of that started wetting my appetite for getting out in the world. Mm. You know, actually on the, on this last page here, I ask you, are you doing anything new? And I said, are you studying Arabic? She no, you already studied Arabic. <laughs> I did. I was miserable at it. Yes. Good God. <laughs> was, was it for mm. anthropology that you were in? Yeah. 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 And it was um, actually, it was a, a really, amazing time to be in Cairo because I have since been in Cairo I taught I actually covered some yoga classes in Cairo for a month um after the, the oh, uprising. what's her name uh the lady in Cairo the, the Ishtangi there's a couple um the one... Mira and um Iman but Iman. Um, Iman. I know Iman really yeah. well yeah yeah so I went back after the uprising and and just to see the the shift in um, how it was when I was there to after it was really extreme. I guess right, the older you get, just you see these. Yeah, because was that like maybe twenty <laughs> twenty years later? Nearly. Well, let's see. Almost. Uh, 15? Maybe fifteen. Yeah, fifteen years. What, yeah. what was different about it? Well, for one thing, where the university was was right in Tahrir Square, where, oh. which is the center of Cairo. But after 
that the university moved and was planning to move, but after the uprising, it was totally abandoned. And that's the area where all those protests were happening. Yeah. So the whole area is blocked off. It's like a ghost town um, when I was there. And, you know, the, the buildings are covered in graffiti. And um, it was like, it was sort of like um, a zombie movie, you know, where like no one's around. And <laughs> yeah. um, so and when I was there in school, it was the, you know, it was the heart of the city. So that, that alone was a huge, there were bullet holes in the walls and places. And um, yeah, yeah. Can you say the name of the square again? Tahrir, Tahrir That's Square. Amazing. Did you? Yeah. Even so Rachel nicely. Maddow doesn't say it like that. That's incredible. That's really... I'm sure I'm still butchering it, so don't oh, no. don't draw attention to that. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Sounds lovely. Um, so you you came back from Egypt. Is that when you started working at Stars and the and the Discovery Channel with the the I, film studios? I did. Um, there were maybe. There were a couple years before I did that. So I was doing some odd stuff um, after that because I once I finished film school, it was a little like you were talking about earlier, like when you leave home for the first time and you're free and you don't know what to do. And when I got out of school, I, I was like, <clears throat> I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. I really <laughs> sheltered in that environment. So yeah. you did some odd stuff. How odd? Well... <laughs> Not that odd. I mean, like, he's looking for something scandalous, you know. No, no. Oh, a young no. girl out on her own. There's going to be a story. I'll leave it to your imagination. Rose. <laughs> no, that's not going to. That's not going to make Harmony happy. Um, after that, I um I did start um, I I was introduced to Bharatnatyam in 1998. So I started. Oh, the uh, Bharat is uh, that means India. Bharat means India. Um, that moniker also, in in the sense of Bharatnatyam, means um, it's a word that's broken into three parts. The the ba is the bhav or mm -hmm. mood or expression, and ra refers to raga, like uh, mm -hmm. melody, and ta is like the tala, the rhythm. Mm. So um, the dance before its modernization was called Devadasi Sadir. It was temple dances that were solely for the temple. Um, their purpose was devotional. Um, and so the lineage that I learned from was devotional in nature. It wasn't a performance art. <laughs> and so you'd be working all all night at the studio, like 18 hour days, and then you'd think, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go do some Indian classical dance on the weekend. I was doing it um, a couple days a week, um, and I wasn't working in a studio. I was cutting at the time. I was, I think, I was an assistant editor still, oh. so I was just doing like kind of grunt work. And then later, I became an editor. I was just editing promos. It's like getting out of your chair and going dancing. That sounds like a blast. <laughs> yeah, right. and I and it was really. Um, I hadn't been to India yet. I don't know why I was really drawn to it, but a year later was my first trip to India. So that was 1999. You went to India to study Indian classical dance yeah. after while working at a at a production house in, in Boulder. You thought I got to go, but you're going to lose your job that way. So at that time, I think I'm was I working at Stars? I think I started working at Stars in 2000. Mm -hmm. So I think I was still 
yeah, I think the timeline, that's right. I don't think I was starting at stars until about 2000. And you so, jumped on a, on a plane to go to yeah. India. Yeah. I went to Chennai. Um, the, the airport there was still like a, a horse stable. Oh, I bet, yeah. <laughs> I, that was my first stop in India is I flew from New York to Chennai on an international flight. We had an unscheduled stop. Where did you stop? We stopped in Delhi. Oh. And then we said, let, and then they stopped in Bombay as well. Yeah. Just because, you know, it's a, it was a massive clinic. 757, whatever it is, 747. And like, we're going to have an unscheduled stop, ladies and gentlemen. We're just gonna... And they left my bag there <laughs> in Delhi. And I arrived in Chennai, which is exactly right. It's a fucking horse stable <laughs> with one like little trolley that the bags come out of. And I'm just standing there for, I stood there for like, for like a hour and 15 yeah. And after the, the trolley stop, after the trolley stop is <laughs> like, and this kid from Chennai, full Indian kid, big kid, he leans over to me and he says, what you, it doesn't look like, doesn't look like the, the, the bags are going to come out. What do you think? Why does he have a Texas accent? Because he's like, he went to, he went to college in Oklahoma oh. and he was trying to speak to me like an American. And like I had to, I went and stayed with his family for three days in Chennai. That's so amazing. And then they put me in with the grandparents. Uh And that was my introduction to India is sitting for like, honestly, like nine to 10 hours because we would also go out to the beach or go eat, but they would just leave me there in the room because they didn't know what to do with me. And I would just watch the sitar on the TV (laughs) with these two old people who... I mean, I don't know what it is about India. It's like they had lost the will to live, but they're still like just alive. <laughs> and they just sit there and they watch the, 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 sitar. the sitar. And I was soothing. like. Oh. It's better than the nightly news. Look. Yeah, I agree. It's soothing mm. for the soul. <laughs> so did that, does that resonate with you? Does that resemble your first trip to Chennai? Is that the oh, same way? No, my first trip was, you know, my recollection was, pretty magical um (laughs) yeah i mean i had i had an arrangement with my dance teacher um who um who i stayed i stayed in an apartment above from from her house so they came to pick me up um i i spent um my whole time in this neighborhood in chennai i'd have dance classes with her in the morning and in the evening and then there was the Shivananda ashram down the road. So that's where I started exploring. Why, why did you go there? <laughs> because, <laughs> because it was, I was very curious. I mean, I knew, I knew of yoga. I mean, I remember seeing some of it on TV when I was little, like who was the woman with the braid? Lily's fallen. Yes. Yeah. So I had a oh, yeah. awareness of it, but when I passed, it was a Shivananda ashram. And they had a sign out for classes and I just thought, oh, that sounds great. So I just started going. So I would go there early in the morning and then have a dance class, wait through the heat of the day, have another dance class in the evening. Yeah. And I you was must there have for been exhausted. I was in my twenties. Yeah. <laughs> Having the time of her life. Yeah. But it was, been, it was hot. It was hot. Was it the kind of a nice, like a, uh, uh, club scene was there a lot of, a lot of- <laughs> no <laughs> yeah it was like this is how how the club scene was i when i would go in the city 
after like my second month there, I would seek out like I would see one Westerner and just be like, like a want someone to talk to and like go eat pizza with or something. It was sort of like I I was pretty isolated. Um, yeah, wow. So, <laughs> how long did you stay in, stay there by that, yourself? That time I was there for three months. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a long. That is a long time to be pretty isolated on your own without a community around. Yeah. Just yeah. like really immersed in local Chennai activities. Yeah. It must and have it was terrified pretty... your parents. No. Mm, no, I mean, I remember my dad taking me to the airport and um there was one other dance student who went with me, so she was there for the first month. Um, uh, but he was he was just like um have a great Light time. As a sheet. <laughs> Have a great time. How long had you been studying dance when you decided to go? About a year. Yeah, that's insane. About a year. There must God. have been something like really that struck your heart and soul that like drew you to that place. Well, there's something. Um, I mean, this is all like kind of storytelling. I don't know if it's true, but I mean, we did visit some temples when I was there and um, there we went to Chidambaram, which is the Nataraja temple, which is amazing. It's the only temple of Shiva's Nataraj there. Mm-hmm. And we went to another place called Gangakonda Cholapuram. And when I went to that temple, I really have to say there was something um, like I have goosebumps still. I can feel my... <laughs> Like there was something very, I don't know, familiar about that place. And um, I can't say, oh, is it past life stuff? I don't know. But there was, there's some kind of unexplained pull and, and interest and, and, and like a very subtle, strange familiarity. (laughs) Um, But I really responded. And this is also, I think, why I responded to the Ashtanga system too was just like I really liked there was a there was a structure that you just built on so when you learn Bharatanatyam you learn what are called adavus and they're like they're like letters for your body right so you learn these this alphabet and then you build upon that so it was very methodical very repetitive <laughs> so I um and then the depth started emerging so it wasn't only the way I felt physically, like exhausted, feet hurting. Like the whole time I was in Chennai, I was dancing on this concrete tile on concrete floors, um, soaking my feet in cabbage water every day. <laughs> like, wow. Does that work? It did. It does help it with did. inflammation, what, I think. Right? What, yeah. do, what does the cabbage do? I don't know. My teacher just said, do it. So yeah, it was soaking my feet in the cabbage water. I'd like to soak my lower back in cabbage oil. <laughs> Put it in the bathtub. Yeah. Do you think it's good for the callus or is it good for the inflammation? What do you think? That's, I think that's... it's the inflammation. I think so because I felt like um, I was say it felt like bruised plums. Like my feet just felt um, yeah. they were so um, pulverized, mm-hmm. <laughs> not on the skin but just underneath the skin because it's a very it appears to be like a very pounding dance, but you you do a lot with your feet and you wear bells. So you have to make this very crisp noise with your feet to, to have the rhythm. So you were there with bells on. (laughs) Huh? Interesting. I wonder, um, (laughs) ridiculous. 
<laughs> so I, I wonder, you know, one thing I noticed about, I noticed about being in India is that um, more people there had feet like I did than back home. Most of the people that I noticed in North America, their feet um, are tapered at the end and they kind of point in. Whereas um, I, I guess I was barefoot most of my childhood and my feet really are very wide at the end and they're very, the toes are very open and wide and separate from each other. And I noticed that you know, when I see Indian people, they're all so barefoot most of the time that their toes are really, really wide. Um, I think their feet are spread. They're yeah. spread more than Western feet, you yeah. know, we're enclosed in shoes and high heels and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Did, did you notice anything like that um, happening to you when you were dancing on the concrete or, or did they recommend that in any way, like feet wideners? Toe no, you know, you know how so much is transmitted, right? In India is like, there's not explicit directions like do this. So this happens. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're told to do something and you just do it and your, things aren't necessarily explained beyond the the effort of doing them so um i just did what my teacher told me <laughs> yeah and practiced um so that i could be ready for the next thing it's incredible that i mean that's that's really um you just do this thing and see it and then you try and do it i heard that was even the reason that was the way that patabi joyce taught manju and saraswati like he would just be doing his practice in the room and the kids would come in and do that yeah, and just let them, you know, let them play as he yeah. said. And, it's, and, but it, it's amazing how they take that, they, that same idea to adults and say, you just, you just do it and we'll, you know, we'll maybe we'll tell you why. Yeah. I don't not. think the, the why is very um, elusive. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I learned that in, in yoga as well. The why was pretty elusive. It's the Westerners who would explain stuff to me. It was rarely an Indian person. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. I mean, that's really like we so we we're so eager to explain things yeah. that that's we ended up doing most of the teaching. <laughs> I think is I mean it's there's even similar with like the chanting when you learn Sanskrit. They you know, you learn all the sounds and the words and then you learn this chanting but nobody really tells you the meaning of what you're chanting. It's a very Western kind of approach to be like, I need to know what I'm chanting before I say it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I remember people like when we were with Jai Shari would say, you know, well, we want to know the meaning of what we're chanting. She's like, why? why? Just, just do the chanting the and the meaning will come. The meaning will come when you chant. <laughs> you know? This, yeah. this is all why I think, um, well, I, I resonate a lot with, kind of the Indian way, which is it's experiential. So mm -hmm. I realize a lot of my life is very experiential. How does something feel? How does it feel? I can't always explain things. And I'm certainly can't exp like be very articulate sometimes, but I know, I know a feeling when I know it, you know, I know when something resonates, I know um, when something makes me feel mm, unified i know when something makes me feel separate you know so that experiential learning <laughs> yeah. i i i love it i mean i love knowing also the <laughs> the knowledge of it too but 
you know, going through the process. So with dance and, and later with yoga, it was sort of like, I just was on board, you know, a hundred percent, just go for it. Don't ask too many questions. <laughs> yeah. And I would assume you were, like you say, feeling things from the inside and resonating and having like a whole experiential um, understanding that maybe even transcends linguistics, you know, transcends reasons why or why I not. Think so. I think so. And I, I can even think of some times where I ruined that feeling by asking something, mm. you know, like asking my teacher to explain when actually the whole thing was right there. And then I had to, I ruined it by asking, mm-hmm. you know, because it put her in her head um, and that's not where it was, you know, mm-hmm. and it wasn't in an English language either. So, um, yeah. And often, right. The answers you get <laughs> are, um, you know, why I think why Patabi Joyce was, he didn't speak English well, but they were very simple. You do practice yeah. like this kind of stuff and you put you on. Take. <laughs> get out of your, and it's that really is, what that means is get out of your head. Yeah. Yeah. Stop why, it. Why fearing? Stop thinking, please. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. So you you were there in in Chennai three months, and and you were doing Shivananda yoga at the Shivananda ashram, and and you came back to Colorado after yeah, your trip, I did. Mm-hmm. and then you started working at, at Stars. I'm sure you were also doing yoga as well. You were pretty excited about it, doing dance as well. Yeah, so I was dancing regularly. I was doing a Shivananda practice on my own a few days a week. And then when I, um, I think I was in Fort Collins at that time, but then I moved to Denver to work at Stars. Um, and I was teaching a, a beginner's Bharatanatyam class at the studio. And the class after that was a, a led primary class. And I became friendly oh, wow. with the teacher. Mm-hmm. And she's like, come and try it. So one day I came in. A stronger yoga primary. Yes, yes. Oh, wow. And it was um, a woman named Brenna Hatami, who's been a longtime yoga teacher in Denver. She's a student of Tim Miller. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, this was another uh, just kind of feeling thing. I was so excited by the movement and this linking of poses um, in such a way that um, it felt kind of like a dance. So I started going to that class. I was totally learning, right, in (laughs) not a Mysore way, Mm -hmm. um, which I definitely see why that is not the way to learn. But that's how how I was learning, was just led led classes. Could could you um, clarify that? Mysore is not the way to learn the... Oh, no, no, Mysore is. No, no, Mysore is the way to learn. Yeah, I meant lead lead classes. Just jumping into lead classes is not, <laughs> not in my opinion, not the recommended way to to be learning. And, and why do you why do you feel that? Because I I mean, the beauty of a Mysore style class is the the methodical step by step. When you're ready, when you're you as an individual are ready, then this, then this. So there's a lot of care. Mm-hmm individually that's very important and that's totally lost obviously in a sea of (laughs) people just trying to keep up with you know some count and they don't know you know I didn't know what I was doing I was just following yeah Mm -hmm. um and you know you end up 
just doing stuff you're not ready for. So that's not appropriate at all. Mm-hmm. You know, Harmony and I, we, we do a, a history of the of Ashtanga Yoga um, slideshow in some of her oh. workshops. Mm-hmm. And uh, we go through different slides. And, and I talk about um, one of the one of the major factors why Ashtanga yoga was so was received so well at, at the time that it was. And I use uh, Jane Fonda's workout <laughs> as an example. I can see the picture in my head. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's this, there's a sea of, of women who've all um, been uh, acculturated to going and working out vigorously and moving their bodies vigorously in many different directions in a room together all at the same time. And someone sees, I could imagine someone seeing a technique like Ashtanga Yoga said, oh yeah, I'm going to apply that exactly to this paradigm and do it the same way. And all the women will come in their leotards and they'll all do Ashtanga Yoga in exactly the same way, all in a grid. Yeah. But it, I've, I've, I think that that's why there were so many injuries happening. In the '90s, was so many people blowing out their knees and their and their back, is trying to do, trying to keep up in the class and do the yeah. thing that they're being told to do. I I generally think um, the only way or the best way is really a Mysore style. I just don't understand. It, it's more in line with what I understand of Krishnamacharya teaching the person. You know, so it's closer to that. I mean, I. I look on my own experience of following along in this tradition and it hasn't served me. It served me very well in many ways, but in other ways uh, it really hasn't, you know, and I would say physically um, just trying to maintain uh, what I, what I was, the messages I was getting from the kind of system, the overt messages um, brought out in me, uh, pushing my physicality to the limits. Mm-hmm. And I was equating that a lot with value <laughs> and, right. and, and spiritual growth. And, uh, I was totally, totally missing the whole point. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And I was doing that for a long time. And I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know. And no one, no one told me, you know, no one pulled me aside to say, Whoa, like you're missing the point. Yeah. Was that like, did you find that frustrating? Because you spent a lot of time practicing in Mysore with Patabi Joyce and Sharat Joyce, and you saw a lot of people come and a lot of people go probably. And did you find it frustrating coming up against um, this sort of natural tendency we have to equate progress in asana with spiritual um you know, enlightenment spiritual, or advancement or spiritual specialness. Yeah, spiritual well, specialness. I think that's a good way to put it, spiritual specialness. And I think even if the messaging's like, it doesn't matter what you're doing, even if that is said once a week, mm-hmm. the culture itself um, is supporting all the other stuff. I yeah. mean, from my from my experience, that it was it was what was the message wasn't uh, how's your mind today? It was, did you catch today? Or what did you do today? Or why weren't you here? It was never checking on me except in a physical way. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, you know, I was, you know, in retrospect, I I do think I was definitely on borrowed time as far as, (laughs) um, trying to maintain the rigors of, of, 
an Ashtanga practice as it, as I was taught it and as I was trying to teach others, you know? So it, it sounds like you, you've been struggling with some kind of some health issues. I'd like to, to learn more about them, but can we set up the whole, your whole Mysore story first? Sure. You're, you're in Colorado, you're at stars, you've been, been teaching dance and, and then you started doing a lead primary class. Did you get into a Mysore room as well? Did you go to Richard Freeman's? I like- did. I did start going to Richard's um, when I could. And it was a total another experience because, mm. oh, and I, I had two friends that also started a Mysore here in Denver. So I started going to that. And um, so I was doing some Mysore eventually um, and some like kind of more broken down Ashtanga kind of classes. Mm-hmm. Um and then I was going to Richards and the, f- the first time I was there, it was also after being in what I thought was a regular Mysore room and <laughs> Richards is definitely more experimental. <laughs> yeah. That's how so? Irregular <laughs> Mysore room. Tell, tell us, <laughs> yes. how, tell us how Richard Freeman is an irregular Mysore room. No, well, I mean, and now I really appreciate the, um, and I, I did, I did spend time with Richard and I did the intensive and everything. So I, um, I value so much there, both he and Mary and their wisdom. Um, at the time I was just seeing like, what is this? Cause it's not what I was learning. So I was confused. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but now I just see, you know, and I remember them saying later on, Mary saying, sometimes we've got to rein it back in. Like they, they encourage, they encourage healthy exploration and, but sometimes it needs to be reined back in because, <laughs> but I was going there. I was going there. Um, if I could, I just a couple times a month, you know, and the room was packed. I don't know if you were ever at yoga workshop when it was there, but it was not a big room. Mm-hmm. And the Mysore classes were, I mean, <laughs> just super, super packed, you yeah. know. Um, I God. took one Mysore class there with, with Richard it was like the one day a week he was teaching back yeah. in maybe 2007 or eight. And, um, and yeah, it was, and of course I had been spending a lot of time in Mysore as well every year. And so I was very much used to that, um, you know, very uh, orthodox kind of, you know, system. And then I, I, all of a sudden I find myself in Richard's room, which I'm very excited about. And it was like I looked around and there was someone like warming up for Kapotasana and they're doing like fourth series backbends and third series backbends. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? I think a lot of people come in the room like, ah, especially if you're, you've been pro- programmed a certain way. Yeah. yeah. I was like, this is very different. Yeah. 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 So you're being counter-programmed at, at Richards. Yeah. And did you then say to yourself, I need to go to Mysore to get programmed? Um, I, well, I it was on my radar to go to Mysore. And then I had an opportunity with my work, you know, I had a month vacation time, so I just took it. Um, a so month. yeah. And every, it was blowing everyone's mind. Like, oh my God, you're going for a month. Oh my God. Like, yeah. At the time when you have a, a, you know, a regular nine to five type job or longer than that, even, mm-hmm. you know, it, it people can't understand. And I, anyway, so That's I went, um, yeah, I taking went into, a month off of your job is a, is a big deal. That's 10 amounts yeah. of firing. It is. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it is. It is. Um, so I went in 2005 um, in November. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what was that like? Um, <laughs> well, my my initial experience that first week was pretty um, – it was blowing my fantasy pretty quickly. <laughs> it was very different from Chennai? Um, oh, yeah. So I hadn't been back to India. Well, Mysore was totally different than Chennai. But just the experience of the shala and um, what I was expecting kind of was disappointing at first. And um, there was a long moon day right at, during that first week, I think. So I had um, a long weekend. And I was I was kind of disappointed. And so I, I had a friend who was... Um, living in Madurai. So I took the train there mm. and she, she, she was part of the Shivananda ashram there. So I stayed at the ashram. I was doing my practice and they were just supportive of was chanting there. And they just said, just let go of whatever you don't like and take in what you do. And so, something shifted. So when I returned to Mysore, the things that I was finding kind of negative or disappointing kind of stopped. And I just, really started enjoying it. Um, what was disappointing? Um, I think I thought, even though Annie, Annie Pace had already told me, you're not going to have a relationship with, uh, with, with Patabi Joyce. So just, you know, start trying to make a relationship with, with Sherat. Um, you'd, so, you'd gone down to Crestone to study with Annie there in yeah, Colorado. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you had a relationship with her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess, um, I was waiting in line to pay and you just hear the cash machine and it just, um, it was really, um, I, I guess I was expecting, I, I was anticipating or fantasizing of some really warm reception and, oh, uh, no. it was too- <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm sorry. <laughs> you yeah. That's what I mean. Like you these- name. Yeah, these fantasies. And then he writes were, down your name, and then that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the cat, just and I remember just the you know the amounts of money on the table, and just it was really, it just was not what I was expecting. It was nothing like any anyone was telling me. You know all the previous mythology about Mysore. So, and I I was seeing. Um, like socially, it just seemed kind of like a pickup scene. Yeah, yeah. Like a pickup scene? <laughs> <laughs> it's a pickup scene. It's, yeah, a, yeah. it's interesting, you know, um, for so many of us, our generation that are there in 2003, four, five, six, seven, that, that period, um, which is now subject of, a, of an enormous scrutiny on Batavi Joyce's behavior, yeah. at the time, our complaints were entirely financial. Yes. Our <laughs> complaints true. were about That's the true. money and the yeah. what we were getting for service. You know, we paid four hundred dollars, and I I got backbends, and and like, what is this? You know, where's all? What's all the? Where's the, the teaching? Where's the teaching? <laughs> and this is a lot of money, and I'm stone broke. Everybody thinks I'm I'm rich because I flew all the way here. But I'm I'm a I'm in poverty. I'm I'm you know functionally homeless back home. Yeah. Because <laughs> I live with my parents, or I live in, in someone's closet, you know. And yeah. it was it was an, the money for us was the obscenity. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, I remember that and that it was always um, the criticisms were, I, I agree, they were largely financial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you had a nice weekend away and you came back, you were ready yeah. to go. Yeah. And huh. I just, I had a great time. I had a great time. Um, yeah, I had a great time. And then I didn't come back again until 2008. And then I was coming pretty much every year or so, um, every other year until I guess the last trip was, well, I was in Mysore last year, but I didn't, you know, it was right before the, everything shut down. Mm -hmm. But, um, the last time I was practicing was, I guess, 2017 or 2018. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And did you meet Luke in 2008? I met Luke in 2005. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you strike up a romance? <laughs> I guess that was the start of everything was at that time. Yeah. Did did he keep in touch in the in the in the 3 years between? Yeah, we were we were in touch. <laughs> huh. I'm so curious. She's being so coy. Um it's, so you, you you went back to Colorado. Did, did Luke come and visit you there? You were working. No, I was working. Um, I think it was around that time, or, or yeah, before that, before I went to Mysore, where I was really. I do remember a distinct moment in my car driving to work in the traffic and just having kind of a breakdown, like I don't want to do this <laughs> anymore. And uh, things started really shifting. The traffic's that bad. Not bad. God damn. And, and that's in Denver. Was, the traffic's that bad. <laughs> it is. Fuck, was it? Do you no, think it was like a like a like a a um like a countercultural sort of um breaking point in a way? Like, had you gotten back from Mysore and then you're just like overwhelmed with I think my I think this thing happened before my sore mm-hmm. um, but it was just a lot of shifts and and I was you know I was working long hours in a dark room and computers and you know um, kind of a high stress environment first you know it's not a triage unit but mm-hmm. people <laughs> yeah so I, I was kind of over that and um, yeah I just wanted things to change and they started changing yeah, so I got divorced during that time. I what? I, you were married and the uh, divorced? Yeah, and that's then not I, in your bio. <laughs> <laughs> then I moved to. Then I went to DC. So I moved to DC um, and worked at Stars, or I mean, at Discovery for the next year and a half or so. Was he just a drip, like a couch potato? Like what didn't what, what didn't work for you? <laughs> it just didn't work. <laughs> Yeah, I know that feeling. Um, so, <laughs> so how long did you live in D.C. then for? You lived I in D.C.? D.C.? Yeah, she just yeah. said. I'm so curious. There's all kinds of things you don't know about Sonia. <laughs> do you know my friend Keith and that French guy in D.C.? Did you practice with those guys? Yes, I know Keith. Yeah, Keith is my buddy. Yeah. 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 Keith and David. So I Keith was practicing and David. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was practicing at their shala. Mm-hmm. Um, uh yeah, I was practicing there. I was working at Discovery, and my whole plan was kind of to work and save money, get out of debt, save, get a savings, and then go back to India and just see, yeah, see what happens. I remember one day I was in I was in Mysore, and um, 
I was on Lagavadrasana, and I had finished up and I'd done my backbends, and um, I was going into the changing room, and Sharat was backbending uh, Keith, and he and he looks and Sharat turns his head behind him and he looks and he looks over at me, Russell, Kapodasana. And I look at him and I was like, now? <laughs> and Keith broke up laughing so hard he couldn't do backbends anymore. Because I was like so not in the mood for another posture. I didn't want to do it. And not like, no, no, I don't want, no, I don't, I don't want to do Kapitazana. I'm done. I want to go home now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I see that, uh, you wrote a lovely children's book. <laughs> We've missed so much of her story. You want to jump all the what way. What do you there? mean? What she, she was in DC and then she wrote a children's book. No, she traveled like around the world teaching yoga. With Luke. No, also by herself. Oh. That's, like, <laughs> that's it. Harmony, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> were you studying the yoga sutras that whole time that you were traveling and teaching the whole time well i was studying i was studying the sutras and the, the reason this book got started at all was i was studying with dina kingsbury in australia mm-hmm. you went to australia i did she's and- been everywhere man <laughs> she's been everywhere man <laughs> now obviously dina is a is beloved figure and yeah. Harmony is, it's like a major figure in Harmony's life. My first introduction to Dina was through Mitchell Gold, who did uh, Dina's training there in Australia. That's what you did, that three-year training? Yeah, yeah. I did, the, I did two years of the three, yeah. Mm-hmm. He described it as like a living hell. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, no, that, I wouldn't call it that at all. You, you no. liked it. I did. Yeah. Oh. And I loved Byron. And um, yeah, at the time, especially the first year, um, it it was really kind of feeding everything I was looking for at mm. that time. Yeah. What was that? Um, guidance, um, mentorship, um, deepening in practice. And even at that time, that meant deepening in an asana practice. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, community, um, yeah, learning and getting able to practice. You know, I learned, I, I do feel like a, the the greatest thing I got from being there was a lot of the, just working with adjustments and getting honest feedback and uh, working oh, on each other. She yeah. Will give you honest feedback. Yeah. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. Invaluable, invaluable. So I, that was really valuable for me. And we were studying the yoga sutra and one of the exercises was to try to explain the sutras like you're explaining them to a child and everyone was just translating them sentence by, you know, this means that. And I, I started writing what became young yogi and the mind monsters. And, um, it was a shorter story at the time. And when I shared it with the class, everyone was like, (gasps) It's such a great idea, blah blah blah. So, <laughs> did, did you have children from a previous marriage? No, I don't. I don't have any children. Huh. And so, did you? Did you have? Did you know children that that would? I mean, did you have like nieces, and you you were thinking about them, and or did you just like me, like you had an inner child that needed care? I wounded. Well, 
might, <laughs> might be wounded, but you know, my, my way of understanding things is experiential and also simple. Mm-hmm. So I don't, you know, I understand things I can read, you know, commentaries, you know, but do I really absorb that? I, I personally don't absorb that, but I absorb the feeling and the essence of things. And so um, trying to write and creativity, you know, creativity is so important to me and I love it, you know, so to try to express something like these really, you know, intense, crazy, mind bending sutras in a simple way was like a really, a really good exercise and journey for me for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting the way that uh, Young Yogi and the Mind Monsters is written because it's a narrative. It's a whole story. So it's not, it's very different than even though it's based on the Yoga Sutras or using the concepts from the Yoga Sutras, it's a very different experience reading it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was hard. That was the, one of the hardest parts was trying to make a hopefully interesting story with, you know, action and arcs and change while trying to express, you know, the essence of what these sutras mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's difficult. Who's the, um, the guys out, the, um, the Tibetan yogis out in Car- uh, Arizona? Um, the guy Michael with, Geshe Roche? Yeah, Michael Geshe Roche. They wrote a, a kind of narrative transcription of the Yoga Sutras. Did you see that book? No, no. And it was a, it was a young woman who was um, using the Yoga Sutras to describe this kind of conflict with these other men. And, was, and yeah, really? I think John Scott wrote a foreword for it. I've never heard of this book. It's no, really, I haven't yeah, it was, it was a, it was, Your book reminded me of it. And it's, it's really lovely. For I'll just read one, one section here. This is a short one uh, from Pada, the first Pada. And what do you call these, the, the verses? Yeah. The verses, 10, one, 1. 10. Sure. That night, young, young yogi hid his pillow, tired from the day, but determined to stay awake and avoid another night with the mind monsters. Before he knew it, he was asleep, and it was deep and uneventful. Can you walk us through how that's a how that's uh, how it's a transcription of of a yoga sutra? Well, so that one is relating to how sleep uh, is a, f- a fluctuation of the mind, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, in that sense, he's not he's not affected by any turnings or he's not affected by the monsters. I use the dream of the monsters as an example for suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that moment he didn't have any suffering. It's, it's, so these things are all um, mental projections. Well, my hope was that the, the mind monsters are an easy way to understand that suffering or what you believe you're thinking that's causing you distress or hardship Mm -hmm. is a mind monster. It's not in fact real. Mm. You know, your thinking is not real. It can be a tool. It can be useful, but it's not, um, it's not real. Yeah. Yeah. That it's our, our attachment to our thoughts or our, our belief that the thoughts are true that actually cause us so much torment. Right. And so 
that that case about sleep, my understanding in the mm-hmm. in the sutras is that knowledge of sleep means that there's actually no turnings of the mind. And that might be a very simplified <laughs> look. I'm not. <laughs> I will freely admit my understandings are very simple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, uh, but that in that in that case, then there's no there's no disturbance. Yeah. What but was even... Einstein said? If, mm. if you can't explain it to a six year old, you don't really understand it. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but even I think yoga philosophy talks about how states of deep sleep are similar to samadhi. And even like entering samadhi is similar to the way that you enter into sleep, right? You have to yeah. let go and release into it. Yeah. Whereas the more you try to make it happen, the less sleep you're going to get. That's right. That's right. You have to relax. Don't do and, it. Uh, yeah. Let your body do it. Exactly. <laughs> and that's sort of, I guess, at the end, I used his death experience or near-death experience to explain kind of the process or of of the different stages of samadhi, mm-hmm. and that was the only thing I could think of that um, <laughs> was like a concrete thing that could reflect that kind of understanding. Yeah, um, yeah. It's difficult. I mean, it's, it's difficult to talk about these higher states of consciousness, even you know, to adults who have lots of language and life experience, but to relate it to a child is, I mean, in a way, I I love this. I love your book and I love the project because it's, it's so like Russell, you know, quoted Einstein. It's so beautiful to be able to just bring it down to something so simple. And like, how would, how would you explain this to a child? And and it doesn't have to be complicated. And I think sometimes we really overcomplicate things. I think, I mean, I definitely do. Um, and I know some people <laughs> more than others do that complicate things and mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, I do, I do like the distillation of things into the simplest form. I really like, um, I like that when I practice. I like that when I sit. I like that when I'm walking in nature. It's just a simple, um, it's that experiential feeling, yeah. whatever is happening. So, and it's, it isn't complicated. Mm-hmm. On the, in the back here, um, the, the, the padas are translated. The yes. uh, sutras are translated. Luke, Luke translated those for me. Oh, you, beautiful. You trusted him to do that? I did. Oh, Luke. <laughs> That's funny. Um, it says 1.10, the knowledge of sleep is dot, 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 based on the absence of any content. And it's, it's, really, it's really beautifully simple and elegant. And it's such a, a wonderful notion also that the things that we don't know, the mysterious, are really not known. And they're they're not something that can be known, but we can understand. Uh, can understand them. Well, I mean, I think with all these, the, the philosophy, the chanting, um, any kind of practice, is that there's always, I don't know, the end result or whatever it is that it's pointing to is so unreachable, right? So it is. It is based on our experience or our understanding or. And still, that's that's not it. 
right to have an experience of the unknown is is that's so ineffable (laughs) because you're not having an experience of the unknown but yet yet you had it (laughs) it's a great paradox yeah it is a great paradox it is but uh i mean how do we know anything is is, through our experience (laughs) and even then we can doubt it (laughs) even then tell us a little bit about what your practice is like these days sonia i'd love to i'd love to hear how things are going we were talking a little bit about like injuries and some physical things that were challenging she sounded like really deeply um resentful of her teaching no not resentful no but Did I, think, was, I never said no, I was teasing you. <laughs> I am teasing you. No, uh, I don't really have a practice to speak of. I kind of just, you know, I, I kind of roll around on the mat a little bit and try and it's a mess. And, but you're absolutely right. I really, I really felt it when you said that, that, people always did reaffirm that the practice was the end all be all. And it's like you would, you were given special status and special favor if you had a good practice and if you were spectacular. And yet what your book is so lovely is that it really comes down to, you know, like the child and the child mind, you know, understanding what is. Yeah. So where is, yeah, where is your practice at? Um, well, I have a very, I still practice a kind of Ashtanga-based practice, but it's very, uh, I practice much less. Like I practice still maybe four to six days a week, but not always Ashtanga, and it's definitely shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes me longer to get into things, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And um, I like to stay in things longer. So all of that is different. Um, I kind of I was saying to someone that I practice sinyasa. Like I don't do all these jump throughs and jump backs because I find it really uncomfortable at the moment. And it's been kind of a long, um, a long experience with that lately. So just moving s- slower, softer, nicer, kinder. Um, the one thing I have observed is when I do other kinds of yoga, I, I do a, a vinyasa krama sequence like once or twice a week. And when I do that, I don't have the same baggage, <laughs> mental baggage that I do with the ashtanga. Sometimes I notice my system, my nervous system just goes at attention when I think I'm going to do an ashtanga practice. So I already feel this tension. Yeah. that I've kind of cultivated over the years. So it does help me to do different practices, but I I also still really like an asana practice. I feel good. Um, and, and a sitting practice is even more important to me now. So yeah. do you follow a particular uh, like meditation tradition? Just a Vipassana style, but mm-hmm. I've, yeah, I've never done the 10 day or anything. Yeah. You'd yeah. like it. Yeah, <laughs> I, just, I don't I just know if a... I need to collect any more um, intense practices. I don't know. Well, it's just what's nice about it is you just have to, you just fucking sit there. <laughs> and I mean, once I like once I figured out like on the first day like that's that's all that was going to happen, 
I'd have to watch some stupid videos in the evening, right? But like, no, the videos it, are lovely. They're stupid, and then like, but most of the time, all I have to do is just fucking sit there, like, oh, this is great. And they would like go on about like you know doing these mental scans. I was like, yeah, fuck that. I'm just gonna sit here. It obviously didn't work for him. No, it worked great. <laughs> I was ecstatic. I was in like, I was in, I was going through like waves of, of sexual pleasure uh, throughout the day. I would just wow. be like rippling with pleasure throughout my whole body. And I was like, this is the best thing I've ever done. And um, I've never done it again, nor do I have any desire to, but um, it was awesome. And I was really like the thing about Ashtanga yoga that was great about Vipassana is that you could, you could just sit and not have to suffer sitting. Okay. And I was like, that seems to be the main benefit of Ashtanga yoga is that you can sit down and, and not suffer when you're sitting down. Yeah, that's, that's an, a benefit. <laughs> I don't know if you need to put your whole body through all of this. That's the thing now that I, you know, do you have to do this rigorous thing some some of us do i did and other people do but i don't know if that's something i really want to support in people mm-hmm. you know? saying that it's good for everybody yeah or just you know it's good for the person that it's good for but um i don't know if i've seen any good results mm-hmm. from this hardcore you know asana practice for i don't know anyone. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the jury's still out. <laughs> I don't think I've seen any good results for anyone from this hardcore. No, just from a rigorous, just from a rigorous, the, the, I don't the know. The intensity you, of you, it. I don't think you, you need to do an intense mm-hmm. practice mm-hmm. to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where are you going, right? Yeah, yeah. That's always mm-hmm. my question. When, yeah. when I feel that that striving, that intensity, that like, you know, that yearning for more that comes up. I mean, not so much in myself these days, but in students, you know, you can feel that like hunger, whether it's for more postures or more practices or more intense discipline. And it's like, I always want to ask, like, where are you going? Yeah. And I know for me, it was like, oh, trying to fill, um, just whatever self-loathing or you just trying to fill up that, that thing. And, um, you know what, actually that thing is not so bad. (laughs) 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 So so I don't know where I've been trying to avoid it for so long. You know, I I would counter, um, absolutely. When someone is striving to get a thing, that's never going to really end well that's always going to end in disappointment and more suffering. And, and that person is going to be tortured by that. My counter is though, that especially from Patabi Joyce's perspective, what he want, what he sought from us was the will to persevere and to encounter emotional thresholds and emotional barriers, understand what it was that emotionally we were afraid of and then do what it took to penetrate through that emotional body to get to this place. So the yoga has been working. (laughs) Yeah. The, that will is cultivated through the attempt at emotionally 
complicated and confrontational postures. And then, yeah, you can you can stand on the uh, you can stand and hold up a whole mountain like Hanuman mm. all by yourself because you have that will. And that that to me always seemed to be like that's where Patapi Joyce was coming from, and that was his emphasis was was just that just he's there to cultivate our will and to and like a coach would do in a football game like, you know mm-hmm. gary barnett is out there with the buffaloes you know in, <laughs> you know you know pain you know uh pain doesn't hurt go go do it and then we all enjoy um the the proceeds actually i'm sorry the student athletes don't but the <laughs> university does it's an interesting yeah. point, like that only after you go through that kind of fire, that kind of purification or come up against that sort of um, emotional or mental um, challenge and break, break through something in yourself. Can you then sort of enter that space where you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know if that's necessary. Yeah. It's already there. Yeah. But I don't know if, uh, yeah, if some I've, I've met, many people who who find this in different ways or find that mm. courage or that self knowledge without ever you know bending over <laughs> yeah. many, as richard it's says true. there are many saints who cannot do vinyasa yeah yeah uh, yeah. yeah i mean life itself will bring you these things <laughs> yeah. you don't necessarily have to go out creating them or seeking them you you're going to come up against them one way or the other eventually. They right? will come. They will come. Yeah. <laughs> the nature of life. They will come. Yeah. I, I would think that, that making a book is its own kind of suffering, its own kind of boulder that you have to roll up a hill every day. Um, the Sisyphean practice. How did you get this off the ground? I see here Atmosphere Press. Do they, do they help you? How did you even find them? Well, I ended up, um, you know, this took a long time to do this book. A lot of, a lot of the time was putting it away, coming back to it, not being good enough, coming back to it, like that kind of stuff for, mm-hmm. for a while. And then when I finished it and I had the illustrator and all that stuff, How'd I started. How did you find her? Kaori? Um, Long? Kaori? Kaori. Kaori. Um, I, there's a, another yoga practitioner I met in Japan named Mm -hmm. Jamie. He was an amazing illustrator and I contacted him because he was great. And he said, I, I'm too busy, but I know just the perfect person. And so he put me in touch with Kaori Mm -hmm. and she was perfect. Yeah. Mm. She's been a great collaborator. Um, so then I started, um, sending out, I did, you know, took a while to do a book proposal and learn how to do that. And then submitting to, a million publishers and getting a million rejections. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was it bit, but it was literally probably over a hundred. Um, I'd say it was a lot. I don't even know now. I, it was not more than that. It was, it was a lot though. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was looking at, um, like all the famous people in the world who've been rejected. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. there, there's good company in that. So that's a good, but anyway then i um publishizer is this online platform where you um 
raise money to get your book published and draw the attention of a publisher. So a friend of mine, a friend of mine put me in touch with them and that's how I got the book done. So that was a whole other process. You know, you have to kind of badger every person you've ever met in your life to, (laughs) (laughs) to believe in your book. And you, you know, you have to make a video and you have to put yourself out there and you have to do all the stuff that I don't like doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Is there, are there people who do like doing that? I think so. Russell. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I, rem- I that, it was incredible though. And so through posting like, and getting the support of, of the people around you, you were able to then kind of show a publisher publisher. Um, like I have all of these thousands of people who want a copy of my book. Will you help me publish it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. And um, it's, I don't know, it kind of took a lot out of me. So, I mean, I've, I've wanted to write, um, to do a book for each pada. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. That, but, there should be, there should be four. <laughs> there should be four. Yeah, mm. there should be four. Well, you have a lot of years left. <laughs> are you, but are you, are you thinking of doing the next book soon? Are you? No, that's not been, I mean, when I finished, I started right away studying again, um, but it's just kind of fizzled out. I'm just not in the space for it right now. I think, you know, if it's going to happen again, it's got to be really, um, there's got to be really good, exciting energy behind it and not like, I've got to do this. I must do this. So I'm just, yeah, giving it space. Let's see. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to have this out there, you know, that's my baby out in the world. So <laughs> yeah, it's, that's huge. Man, it's not easy to get a book published these days and, and let alone write one and do all the things, you know, that go along with it. <laughs> it's huge. Yeah. It's a huge endeavor. It, yeah. It says here that you'd like to thank the Eindhoven yogis for listening is that nick evans is that who you mean that was before nick was there oh um, okay we were um because luke and i were teaching in eindhoven a couple of years ago and um on on sundays i think it was there was a, a sutra study group so we would chant and then luke would explain the philosophy and then i would read my working in progress portion of young yogi mm-hmm. so um oh, wow. It was really fun. Yeah. So yeah, they were subjected to um, kind of the early, early versions of that. Fantastic. It, Nick refuses to come on the show. I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> I mean, thank you for coming on the show though. Do you, and you also, um, you're the founder of Rasa's Malas. Rasa Malas. Rasa yeah. Malas Jewelry. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. amazing. How do you have time for like a, another, th- another thing? You have all these things. Yeah, they're just, um, there's time. (laughs) (laughs) There's time. Do you make make malas? Is that what you do? Yeah, but I make, um, they're very special malas. They're, they're one of a kind and they're spiritually special. Well, they're just into, they're intuitively made. I kind of tune in to the person and just make Uh what I think they're going to like, and oh, I've nice. been pretty successful with that. Yeah. And it's fun. It's like, it's just a fun way to create something. Mm-hmm. And they're beautiful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
I want one. Do you want one? Yeah. Oh. It's my birthday coming your up. Birthday your birthday is coming. Get in touch when... with Sonia. I will get in touch with Sonia. Where could I find Sonia so that I can have a, 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 a very special, spiritually special and intuitive mala made? You can go to Rasa my for, for Harmony. When's your birthday, Harmony? My birthday is very easy to remember because it is the first day of summer and it has been hijacked as International Yoga Day. Oh, that's yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. the twenty, the twenty first of June. Yeah. yeah, International <laughs> okay. Yoga Day. My birthday is Earth Day. I would also like a, a mala. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's that can be arranged. <laughs> Everyone knows Earth Day. Yeah. Also, Jack Nicholson's birthday. Wow. Um, remembers that. Yeah. No. Um, so tell us uh, how we how do we find your Rasamalas and how can we order some more copies of the Young Yogi and the Mind Monsters for all of the so, adults and and child adults and children in our lives. Um, so the my mala site is rasamalas.com. Okay. And my if you want to find Young Yogi, it's youngyogiworld.com. Yeah, it's so beautiful. You can see some of the art on that website. Yeah, it's so. a. I'm very happy the, the website. The my friend who built it. Um, I just I'm very happy with it. So yeah, it shows off a lot of the characters and yeah, yeah it's gorgeous. Do you ever get teachers uh, reaching out to you and saying they'd they'd like to order a a, a set for their school? Yeah, I have had um, a couple bulk orders mm -hmm. and um it's also just been translated into spanish so oh. we're finding uh and someone contacted me wanting to translate it into russian so i'm oh, not fantastic. sure that's happening or not but yeah amazing yeah. that's so exciting that's so great <laughs> I, was, slowly, slowly, yeah. Yeah. I was told recently that um an, an interview that i had on parampara was translated into hungarian wow <laughs> And I thought, oh, wow, I'd need to go to Hungary and <laughs> milk this, you know, this treasure trove of, of you know, students. You do. Yeah. It's, it's like that movie or documentary Sugar Man. When oh. he was like so famous in Africa and didn't even know it. Yeah. South Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You're evidently quite a big deal in Russia, Sonia. Being Lithuanian, you should make a move, probably. <laughs> Well, uh, don't start getting talk or uh, talking about Russian Lithuanian politics. That's not, oh, yeah, that could be dangerous. <laughs> Probably not not the topic to to end with. I'm sure, like every other country, Russia would receive you with open arms and take you in. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but now you're living in Portugal, yeah. enjoying the yeah. Beach. The the magic bubble. Well, the the beaches have been closed, so oh, right. yeah. <laughs> they'll open soon. Yeah. Is, one yeah. day. I guess the ocean's riddled with COVID these days. It is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the the water. You got to really watch yeah. the water. <laughs> the salt, the salt it absorbs COVID. Well, this has been such a uh, a giggle. Thank you again coming on the show and being so um receptive and lighthearted. and we'd love to we'd love to come visit you one day and hey please yeah. do yeah thank Col you both so much Col colaris is that colaris Col Col yeah. yeah and if yeah. people are signing up for luke's summer school i'm sure they'll catch a glimpse of you there 
they'll catch a glimpse maybe maybe (laughs) (laughs) once a week you'll make a special guest appearance (laughs) do a reading yeah Mm -hmm. Mm, wonderful well thank you so much sonia it was so wonderful to chat with you same thank you guys so much thank you thanks for listening to this episode of finding harmony with me your host harmony slater you can find out more information on my website harmonyslater.com and i look forward to connecting with you again soon standing in eternity's shadow watching the break